What's up? It's a new episode of Metric, the user experience design podcast, surely the primary user experience design podcast that you should be cared cared about. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Today I'm sitting with Donna Lanclos. We played like DM tag for I think about a year. It, is, it has been a year, and I, and part of it is that we put the dates in when we were DMing each other. <laughs> Hi, it's October. I'm still interested in talking, right? And this is nobody's fault. This is just the rhythm of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> so I have here written that uh, it's just important for me to say that you are an unapologetic anthropologist and folklorist. I know your reputation mainly through academic libraries because that's both kind of like the, the worlds we have mainly operated in, but not exclusively right. so. Yeah, that's um, where our Venn diagram comes together, right? <laughs> For anyone who's like tuning in, uh, do you have a TLDR that you give about yourself? Yeah, I'm an anthropologist and I started off working in libraries almost entirely by accident in 2009 and very swiftly started working with libraries and other. Even though my job has been technically within a library, it didn't take me more than a few months to decide that this is actually about education. This is actually about academia. I haven't ever seen myself as being limited to libraries. Um, and so I like to think the work I do is relevant relatively broadly. You've participated a ton in like a big uh, conference over in the UK, the UX Libs conference. I think it's on like four. It's four. No? It's the fourth one this year. Here, yeah, they're going to be doing it in Sheffield in June this year. That's a, and that's a crazy cool looking one too. It looks pretty prestigious. But you identify yourself mostly as the anthropologist, uh, interested in ethnography. And although I think like user experience design and anthropology and ethnography are certainly related, your yours seems a little bit more legit, <laughs> like more couched in like research. Well, I, so I don't know that it's necessarily legit. I mean, I think it's interesting the ways that my work does and doesn't intersect with the history of UX and uh, user experience in libraries specifically because, so I, I think it's interesting to, well, it may or may not be interesting. I find it interesting to think about the, the history of how those qual things came into libraries from a couple of different angles. So I think that the web usability piece is an interesting lift from uh, web user design in industry, right? You know, there mm. was this sense that you could do things with web environments that made them more intuitive. And the way that you needed to get there was by engaging in this um, usability process that that centered the ways that people do things, not necessarily the way systems are built. Going along with that, I think, was this idea around um, broader investigations of human behavior from a policy perspective within libraries. And that was a lift from a different part of industry. That, that was um, the Rochester libraries deciding that you needed to maybe do some of the things that some of the industries that they had around them in upstate New York, like Xerox, they had social scientists in their companies doing applied anthropology, right? Going into people's homes, sitting with them, uh, spending time in a very anthropological way. But the purpose was to 
be more effective at building and selling them things. So in that environment, you know, looking around and saying, well, what can we do to improve? What can we do to be more responsive? What can we do other than just send out another survey to figure out what's going on with our students and what's going on with our faculty? And so um, the the library ethnography piece definitely started in Rochester and it started with the hiring of Nancy Fried Foster. And I'm going to forget when the dates are. I think it was maybe around 2004, 2006. Um, those things can be Googled and looked yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what that meant was there was a, a moment in libraries similar to that other moment in libraries where they looked at what was happening in industry and said that might be useful for us in a library context and they sort of put it in huh. where i think it came together then was that uh some of the people who were doing the user experience work in web platform interacted with some of the people like me who were interested in more than just the web environment so when you start thinking about places that people there there's a lot of um co-design around physical spaces mm -hmm. in libraries that comes out of some of the work that nancy did at rochester um there's also um my colleague andrew asher's work with the aerial project in right. illinois right and so you so yeah you have these moments where people are doing things in parallel occasionally talking to each other occasionally collaborating and then sort of going back to their corner and, and doing more things so collectively you've got this moment where there's lots of different qual techniques being used by libraries to try to figure out what they should be doing, what they be, should be doing less of, what they should be doing more of, and also how to make their spaces better, their physical spaces and their digital places, like website, like databases, right? So so there's, a, there's the library piece of it, and then there's also the library industry piece of it. So vendors are in on this as well, and you know this, right? You've got the people building the systems that they sell to libraries, and a lot of them, now have user experience teams. I'm not sure when that started to be an embedded part of the the vendor piece of it. Yeah, I only, you know, I jumped ship from libraries to like the vendor side only within the last year. So um Right. And so part of why there was a space for somebody like you is because they've embedded this into at least part of their workflow, right? Part of their thing is, hey, we've got a user experience team, therefore we're building things that don't suck. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> uh, you're building things of use, of value. Um, In and theory, right? This is the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the notion of who the, there's a, a weird vagueness with um, categories of customer and user mm. in this particular thing and you know all the all these words that that signal different things right so so vendors are selling things the the people and the institutions who are paying for those things are not necessarily the same people who are going to be using those things right. right and so the difference between who your customers are literally who is buying your stuff and who the end user is right i think that might be the only reason that that phrase is used is useful the end user phrase usually bothers me to no end but i think it makes a useful distinction right who's sitting and looking at that system and what is it going to mean to them and what sorts of things do the people who bought the system know that the end user really mm. doesn't care about <laughs> and and so the the different sets of priorities 
in and and what's at stake with those different categories of people who are sort of circling around the business that is selling things to libraries and also the business that is selling things to academia and the sometimes tenuous connection that the business of selling things to academia has to the work of academia. If the work of academia is thought and process and criticality and knowledge production, knowledge critique, um, all of these different things that happen in academia, if that's the work, that shouldn't be something that's bought and sold, but there are lots of systems that are bought and sold around that work that are very profitable. And so I think one of the central conflicts that I see in the conversation around user experience and libraries is, is fundamentally that. For, for whom are these user experience teams being deployed? Are the user experience teams or people, sometimes it's just an individual, right? Are they being deployed so that you have an argument to sell things? Or are they being deployed because you really do want to make a better system to facilitate the work of academia? I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago, I think, that was critical of the business of investing in and building out user experience teams because it has great impact on the PR, um, right. that the product that these user experience design teams are creating is less important than the fact that this team exists. Right. So, so I think an interesting question is to what extent are companies engaging in, and I'm, I'm fairly certain I haven't coined this term, I'm sure somebody said this before, the UX washing of their industry. If I haven't got, heard that before. Yeah. If we've got, you know, if we've got greenwashing, right, where it's oh, not, yeah. it's not actually more I environmental, but yeah. they talk a lot about the environment. Um, some of my colleagues who are very interested in OERs and open practices mm -hmm. have talked about open washing, right? So that's you've got a, a a publisher who says, hey, you know, we're providing open access to blah blah blah, and then when you actually do it. It's not open access, but they use that word. Mm -hmm. So I think I think that with all of these things, right? You you have processes that people identify as useful from uh, or an organic perspective mm -hmm. from their discipline or their pedagogy or their way that they want to make things work. I want to center my library around user experience because I'm convinced that that will be a more effective way for the library to be a part of the values of the academic institution in which right. we're embedded, or the values of the community in which the library is embedded, right? User experience is central to the effectiveness of this public institution, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really different thing from, I'm gonna hire a user experience librarian to prove to my dean that I care. How do you judge when it's UX washing or not from the outside? So I think that complicated. I think that as with anything, you know, how do you judge that something is greenwashing, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the, the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? If, if they, they talk a lot of talk about environmentalism, about OER, but then their practices don't follow through, or if they only pay attention to the part of the user experience that gets them really cool publicity, but may or may not, meet as many of the needs of the people in and out of the library as you as you want to right the, these are not easy questions but i think it might be useful to start thinking about when 
when are companies or institutions really interested in engaging with user experience work? And when are they just engaging in UX washing? I have no answer. I have no, no, no follow-up. Yeah, I don't either. But see, I don't know. I don't know if anybody's asking that. Yeah, I've been on the edges of conversations around um, learning analytics, and some of that mm -hmm. is is inspired by the recent articles that are out about U of A's big exper experiment with basically tracking their students in every single way that they can. What is the UVA doing? The the University of Arizona. So they are, um, what they've got is they've got a sort of a, a large scale experiment in learning analytics. And they are arguing that tracking their students and putting all of the data points through the system is resulting in a higher retention rate. Interesting. Okay. So one of the problems with that is that there are other things that they're doing to address retention, right? They're, and every university that I know of is doing things to address mm -hmm. retention. They're looking at what they can do around financial aid. They're looking at what they can do around advising. They are also investing a lot of money in these big learning analytics systems. They're Again, the vendor pieces, they're being sold these systems. And what sure. they're being told is, if you care about your students, you will put this system on your campus and you will track every move that your students make. You will have them swipe into library instruction. You will have them swipe in when they go into the student counseling center. You will have them swipe in every time they participate in a student group at the student union because then you have all of the little data points that you can line up and say, students who do all of these things get this much of a GPA and students who do all of these things get this much of a GPA and they stay at the university for this amount of time, right? This, this is in part a correlation is not causation problem, mm -hmm. but this is also a problem of people mistaking technology and systems for education and in particular them mistaking surveillance you know and yeah. i'm not the only one asking <laughs> these questions but you know a lot of my questions are why would you do that mm -hmm. and if the reason you would do all that tracking is because you care about the user experience because you really think that this tracking is going to lead to a better overall experience they're going to be able to engage more they're going to be able to i don't know what there, there's this argument that it will be better it would be better for students if we track them because then we'll know what's happening and we'll be able to intervene. My question is always, what else could you do? <laughs> what else could you do to help students? So just on a really basic level, to what extent are we outsourcing our duty of care to these systems when we could be making sure that we're staffing our universities so that there are people in place mm -hmm. to have conversations with students. There are enough instructors to be able to notice when students are falling through the cracks. There are enough advisors to be able to sit down and talk to students about what choices they need to make around the study that they're engaged with now, the major course of study that they might need to switch to because it's not a good fit, you can't, well, okay, you can, because clearly some institutions are deciding that they need to, but you shouldn't outsource the human labor of education to learning analytics systems. And I don't think you should outsource the human labor of libraries to analytics systems either. 
Analytics are not going to tell you what the priorities of your academic departments are around collection development. Analytics are not going to tell you what the relationship your instruction librarians has with the students with whom they interact. This is, of course, the selling point of all the vendors who you know go there that, you know, the, hey, the return on investment between um, our learning analytics system versus cost of employing actual like humans for all these spaces is probably lower for a system, but also the time management, like having to like collect all the input from these humans, you know, you could have this all sourced in a single system. It's an attractive product and it's an increasingly possible product because like the technology to build this kind of thing is coming down in cost. Um, so some of it is a, we can, so we mm. should. We can yeah. track all these data points. It's possible for us to do this. We could stick an RFID chip into the neck of all of our students. Yeah. So why don't we do that, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, what's what's the end point? When, when do our students get to withhold the information on their everyday goings about? Because it's nobody's business. Well, this is a, you know, certainly this is a, a larger question for like our entire society at this point. Mm -hmm. The um, where does your right to privacy begin and still enjoy the fruits of so I technology? think there's, there's an insidious argument embedded in a lot of this that suggests that people should give up their privacy in order to be able to move effectively through the educational system, mm -hmm. right? And, yeah. and that we should be violating our students' privacy in order to give them a personalized experience. Right? Yeah, the argument so, is that it makes their experience of learning uh, of the university better. It makes them happier too. That is, that is the argument. And so the it makes our students happier thing is another insidious thing because students are told you need these systems to be successful. So then they say, where are those systems? And mm -hmm. then if they encounter somewhere that says, you know what, we're not convinced of the value of these systems and we'd rather scaffold you with with humans and conversations and you know maybe we can use systems in an iterative way to give you like formative feedback but we're not going to keep that on a year-by-year -year basis because that kind of tracking doesn't necessarily constructively predict things in a way that, that we find valuable for you, right? The, the predictive analytics piece of it is one of the things that really, really worries me because it's just another version of looking at a student, seeing what they've done in the past and deciding what they're capable of. It's tracking, it's, it's yeah. taking a kid who hasn't had enough of X experience because of structural circumstances mm -hmm. and deciding, all right, there's a, there's a lid there. There's a ceiling. There's a place that we've decided as an institution that you don't need to try to go. And I really don't think we should be in the business of that. I don't think we should be in the business of that at a K through 12 level. And I certainly don't think we should be in the business of that um, in higher and further education. The point is for us to expose people to different experiences so that they can do something else. When success of um, an enterprise or a university is based on retention numbers, um, GPA, um, da, 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 these, uh, these, uh, mm -hmm. quantifiable metrics. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear like the, the horror show that's happening outside of this room. I heard the knocking. I haven't heard any of the other stuff that you've been yeah, worried about. Little kid out there <laughs> doing something. Uh, <laughs> the, um, what, let me figure out what I was saying. Um, okay. So if the success is based 
off these numbers and if it can be shown that you know these these uh deep tracking services improve those numbers thus those organizations and enterprises who use such and such product and method are objectively more successful how do organizations who choose to opt out compete so so that's a problem and i and i think one of it is you know what definition of success so again i'm going to mm-hmm. refer to um, my colleague Andrew Asher, who was was tweeting about this just yesterday, and he he looked very deeply in the article that I just sent you the link to, and he points out that about over the the course of this this massive surveillance project that's been put in since um, 2014, since they've been doing this, about 190 students were retained that weren't before, is what Andrew says. And I'm reading off of Twitter now. And he points out that there's about 7,000 first years in that particular cohort. All of those first years lost a significant amount of privacy. For 190. Right. Could that number have happened a different way? What, so you know, what is the definition of success? And and is it, we surveilled all these students and we think that the slightly higher retention rate is due to that surveillance. What if the slightly higher retention rate is due to the other sort of human labor that you're doing? Um, what, you know, I, Andrew asked the question and I think it's a really good one. Where is the line that is no longer justified by potential gains in retention? How far do we let that argument go? And And is retention, the only metric that we're gonna be looking at that is a measure of success of a student, right? Um, what happens if for reasons that don't have anything to do with the university, a student has to drop out and then come back? When that student comes back and, and finishes, that student is successful. That student isn't unsuccessful necessarily at the moment that they're not retained by that institution, but the institution has classified that as a not success because it's within this this focus of what's happening within an institution. The focus is not on the student. Success or failure is not being defined by what's good for the student. Success or failure is being defined by are we getting those student tuition dollars in our pockets all the time? Right. And again, I so I understand the political reality that that emerges from, mm. but that's not an educational system that I want to be in place for our society. I have an idea. You know, the realities of uh, forcing the hand of a business, as we've seen in recent news, but also I think we can think of countless examples, is by pushing or uh, putting economic pressure on them. Uh Um, So a lot of this, uh, the the main analogy that I'm thinking is uh, accessibility work, Um, Uh not just ADA compliance, but things like WCAG, um, higher higher orders of compliance um, throughout uh, design and development. The reason that a lot of vendor produced um, systems and um, content is increasingly accessible isn't for the it helps but it's not for the altruistic notion that things should be designed universally it's because that there has been stigma placed on inaccessible content both legal and social where universities especially are now requiring that all of the things that they buy are you know meet like a basic wcag 2.0 compliance i think there's probably room for similar stigma placed on services that are privacy violating. So I 
hear you saying that you would like market forces to to have some sort of course correct on the ways that universities are going. And I think that market yeah. forces are not the only reason that we've got accessibility in the heads of companies, in the heads of institutions. We've got, as you said, we have laws. Mm. We have we have government involving itself in the ways that people need to do things because it's a social justice issue. Right. So if it's a social justice issue, I don't care about people's profits. I don't care if it costs you a lot of money to do education right. I mean, I, I think this, so this is another thing, and, I, and again, I, I read stuff off of the internet um, too much, but um, there was somebody the other day making the argument that part of the reason that it's so easy to talk about the high cost of the public sector Right. And this happens in the UK. This happens in the US. Right. Oh, the public sector. Oh, they're spending all of our tax dollars on schools. They're spending all of our tax dollars on policing. They're spending all of our, you know, all of the things that they're spending all of our tax dollars. On. You look at the breakdown of what those things are happening in the public sector and they are services. Mm -hmm. They are people that you have to pay to do things. They're not good. The public sector is not full of product. The public sector is full of processes and services and human beings, and those cost money. And so I think we're never going to be able to put, or we shouldn't try, to put a private sector commodified logic overlaying public sector things like schools and hospitals. Because where does that get us? It gets us in the US with a healthcare system that doesn't help anybody unless they have a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. Treating healthcare like a commodity gets us people having to sign forms before they're treated in emergency rooms. People die because we treat the healthcare system as if it's a commodity. And I'm not even being dramatic. I know that happens. So I think that one of the things that learning analytics has as a part of its sort of interior logic is the idea that education is a commodity. Mm. And this is something that I am riffing off of the work of Tressie McMillan Cottom and her book, Lower Ed. She makes one of the most compelling arguments I've ever read against this notion that we should just sit back and let them do this to our universities. She makes the point that the sorts of things that are happening in for-profit education are also happening in not-for-profit education. And I think some of the evidence of that is in the way that they're embracing things like learning analytics. Sure. This will help us commodify the student experience so that we can sell it more effectively so that we can continue to make the argument that they should fund education. It's helping them frame it as a product when that's completely the wrong thing. If, if what we care about is education as a common good, which is, which is also Tressie's argument. So if all we care about is education as a credential that might get people a job, then maybe we're not bothered. But that's not my perspective on education. And I don't think it should be anyone's perspective on education. I, I think that it limits, you know, again, I'm thinking about the ways that we track students um, and then predict how far they're going to go by tracking them. That's, that's not what we should be in the business of doing. You know, maybe I'm a little bit more cynical. Uh, like, and, and I think the only way that certain things come about would probably be through market forces. Not that I like it. Um, uh, but that's, that's sort of like how I've trained myself to think about, you know, design strategy. Um, mm -hmm. 
I've, you know, I, I never often talk about the happiness of the user um, because right. I don't find that to be effective to the people that I have to talk to. Right. Um, but I think there's a, I think there's a certain value where um, being that the user experience is holistic and like a user is going to be like, gosh, you know, this might have like a shitty design, but they care about my privacy. Thus, I'm going to give them my attention or something like that, where the, yeah. the fact that like a, like a, 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 an organization from small to large chooses to be like librarianship in general has chosen to be protective of their users' privacy by making that public, by making that an argument like, hey, we don't offer these services because we care about your privacy. You make it, yeah. I think there's good chance that folks will flock to the services that protect privacy. Um, yeah, I think that the Library Freedom Project is a really good example mm. of people recognizing Tor browsers as a way of, of getting to do the things they want to do online without exposing themselves to all of the different things. Right. But but again, I think, you know, that's if what the market wants to do is sell you stuff. And if the way that they get to sell you more stuff is by capturing your information, you can't trust vendors no. to reassure you that they care about your privacy. You can't, right? Yeah. You, and And even when they say we're going to protect it, stuff leaks. And so the ways that libraries historically have protected their people's privacy is by not keeping by not that collecting stuff, it. by right. not keeping it in the first place. And so then when you put them in a situation where you say to them very persuasively, oh, you know, if you just hung on to that stuff for a while, you could do some really cool things for your patrons you could take care of them in a way that looks a lot like what the private sector is doing and don't, you know, it would be a shame if somebody else did that for your patrons because you're not willing to do that. So it takes the care that libraries historically have taken for the people in their community and made it sound like that's a bad thing. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> And, and I just, I want to kick back against that every time, right? So, it's, you know, like, like Andrew was saying with the learning analytics, what is the price we're asking people to pay for convenience? I mean, libraries talk a lot about convenience in the role of the user experience. Convenience mm -hmm. is something that, you know, the whole satisfice thing and, yeah. and uh, people are willing to take something that's less than because it was easy for them to get to. Um, what's at stake when we facilitate the argument that making things easy is the same thing as doing things in a way that helps people. Damn. Uh, I think we should end it right there. <laughs> That's a pull quote. Okay. Um, this has been super fun. Uh, Thank you. I, I, knew, I like talking about this stuff. I, I, knew, I knew I came into this without questions for a reason. <laughs> um, Donna, if, uh, if folks want to read more about this or you or get in touch with you or hire you, how do they do mm -hmm. that? They would go to my blog, which is www.donalonclo.com. And um, there they will find ways to get in touch with me. They will find things that I am thinking about. Um, they can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Donalonclo on Twitter. And people are perfectly welcome to hit me up and have conversations with me. Super. Um, again, thanks so much for the time. That's awesome. Thank you what for a inviting fun, me. What a fun topic. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, all right, I'm going to stop. Well, have fun, have fun editing. <laughs>